0: Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, you humbled your Son to the point of death, even to death on the cross. We ask you to work repentance in our hearts for the failure to see him as true God from God and ask that you work your miraculous word in our mouths that we may confess Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. In his name we pray, amen. Our text for our sermon is Isaiah chapter 52, verses 14 through 15. Just as many were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form was disfigured more than any other person. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him, because they will see something they had never been told before, and they will understand something they had never heard before. This is the word of our Lord. During this Lent season... We are working our way through. We started at Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 and we're working through Isaiah 53 verse 12 to see what's called the suffering servant section. And with that, it's clearly talking about Christ and it clearly gives us a picture of Christ on the cross. So our sermon theme for every sermon this Lent series is Why Must the Servant of the Lord Suffer? Now, last week, we covered Isaiah 52, verse 13, which says, look, my servant will succeed. He will rise. He will be lifted up. He will be highly exalted. And we covered last week that he had the knowledge to bring about success and that actually it's he's true God who became true man. And so we focus on that. God-man. And we have to remember, it's the God-man that we see today as we work on the next leg of the question, why must the servant of the Lord suffer? Now, from here on out, I will preach on my own translation of the Hebrew, as usual, because there's a few nuances I want to bring out. Verse 14, we're told, as many were aghast over you. Now, I just want to stop here for a minute, because the Hebrew word that I just translated as aghast, That's that word when a natural catastrophe wipes out an entire town and people stand back and go, why, Lord? And some of them go, how how could God have allowed this? But others say, this is God's judgment. And still others turn and they go, Lord, I need to flee to you. You're the only one who could stop things like this. Isaiah, looking at Christ on the cross, steps back and says, why, Lord? And you and I know the why is because of our sin. And so the, in Hebrew poetry, Isaiah then turns around, almost in a parenthetical statement, says, Such was the disfigurement of his appearance from a man and the disfigurement of his form from the sons of man. Literally, is, that's what the Hebrew language says. What's it telling us in English? It's saying he was inhumanely disfigured. Humans can be pretty cruel and mean. And if you don't believe me, take a look at some of the things that the Nazis did under Hitler's authority. Take a look at what happened in Russia under Joseph Stalin. And if you think that you're no better, stop and take a look at some of the psychological studies that have gained popularity that were done by secular psychologists. For example, one in a university wanting to know how the people could go along with what the German people went along with under Adolf Hitler, set up this uh, scientific study where the volunteer wasn't in on it, uh, but they were told that this person on the other side of the wall, they, they had a window, they could see the person, was gonna be asked questions, and if they got the question wrong, they were to shock them. But after each question, they were to turn the voltage up. Now, the person was an actor and they weren't really connected up to electricity. And the person is intentionally missing the questions. And it gets to a point where the person starts screaming, it hurts, turn it off. And, but the guy who's supposedly supervising the whole thing, the expert, the scientist, keeps telling the person, he can take it, turn it up. Of all the people, volunteers that, that didn't realize they were guinea pigs in that scientific experiment, Only a few stood up and said, no, this is killing him. Most, because a person in authority told him to do it, did it. Or another famous psychological study done at another university, where for a week they had uh, volunteers. Some were, di- died, were, were divided up to be prison guards and the others were divided up to be inmates. And the prison guards were given an authority that prison guards are not given today. And they, the authority went to their heads and they became abusive and the people who were inmates fell into depression. All they needed was power. And it went to their heads and they became cruel. But in Christ's particular case, we have to recognize that this is not like a steamroller went over him, so he's so disfigured that nobody could even recognize him as if all of his bones are crushed. In fact, we have to remember that, for example, the New Testament makes it clear that the Passover meal where not a bone was to be broken on that lamb was meant to be a foreshadow, a a type of prophecy of the coming Lord that none of his bones were actually broken on the cross, so it's not this disfigurement was so to a point that you couldn't even recognize him as a human being. And yet on that cross and even before, there is physical torment going on. Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of Christ, was, was not actually based on scripture. And there are a lot of things in it that, that we would raise our eyebrows at. But one thing that probably was pretty accurate when they show the Roman guards beating him They had metal hooks. Well, that's not what the catanine tails were. They actually leather straps that had pot shards pounded into them. The point is you get beat with that just a couple of times, It would literally rip the flesh off your back. And in the Passion, it's probably pretty close as Jesus stands before Pilate and he's just shaking. And that cross is in him and his face is covered in blood. It's pretty gory. And unfortunately, many horror film uh, people started watching that because they enjoyed the gore. But he's probably accurate there. It's probably if he was not using his deity, Jesus probably would have collapsed already at that point. But he suffered physical pain for you and I. But that's not the only pain mentioned here. Jesus also suffered mental anguish. And we could go through it all, but think about the mental anguish of somebody that he just constantly offered grace to, betraying him. Or think about when he's on the cross, all of the disciples flee except for the one that in modern day language, we would call him his best friend, the Apostle John, who stands at the foot of the cross. But who's next to the Apostle John? Jesus' mother. And as he looks down and sees her, he probably thought of those words Simeon told her when, when they went to the temple for the time of dedication when Jesus was a baby. And, and he told Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The mental anguish he endures. And in fact, even prays for those who drive the nails through his hands or through his wrists, if we want to be anatomically autonom- correct. Praise for them who will even mock him. But... It's not just the physical and mental pain. That is not the greatest pain. You and I can imagine some of that, the physical and mental pain. But the true punishment for sin is to be abandoned by God. Even the most devout, God-hating atheist who has worked so militantly against the word of God that God has finally said, fine, have it your way. From now on, even when you hear my grace, my grace will give you exactly what you want and it will harden your heart. It's no longer grace for you. Even that most God-hating, militant person does not know what it's like to be abandoned by God. For when God abandoned you, you received no good. And yet Jesus, the God-man, is abandoned by the Father and the Holy Spirit. And again, I try not to think too much about it. But when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean about his own deity at that point? The God-man who became a man. All I know is it sounds spiritually miserable. And he spared you and I of an eternity of that. Now, as true man, he could be our substitute. As true God, he could suffer an eternity of hell for every last one of your sins and every last one of my sins, and every last one of the sins of the world, and literally get it done in three hours time. He can suffer that so that nobody in the world should ever go to hell. If they find themselves in hell, it's their own fault because he took the punishment for them and offered it for them, and they rejected. Certainly in all of this spiritual, physical, and mental torment, he was humbled He was humbled beneath what is human, but that was so he could lift you and I up and make us God's children. That's the first part to our question. But before we move on to the second answer to the question uh, in today's text, we have to point out that even now today, there are people that cannot believe that God would allow such harm to be done to himself. And we've got to be careful because some people get confused and they make this seem like when Jesus is on the cross, like God the Father is just like a, a bad daddy who's just mad at the neighbor. So he comes home and kicks his own kid around. That's child abuse, right? Jesus endured this to fulfill his own righteous justice so that he could save you. And he did it through suffering. But there are many who would deny the suffering, who would turn God almost into a magic formula where if you just believe hard enough in him and do the right things, and they even pull Bible passages out of their context and twist them almost like a magic formula so that if you follow their advice, then God's gonna make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Worldly prosperity is never promised to us. A poor person can let money be their God and a rich person may not have money as their God. And we know of rich people like Abraham who God actually blessed, but God never promises us worldly prosperity. What he promises us is that he'll make, he's made us his children, our sins are forgiven, and the new heavens and the new earth are ours. He promises us that he uses suffering even in your and my life. So when you're suffering, remember, that's not atoning for your sins, but God uses suffering to keep you in your faith, to keep you clinging to him, and lots of times, even for your neighbor. So I always remember one woman I visited, her son had fallen away, sadly, on account of a pastor who did not apply the gospel very well. And as she was dying and I was visiting her regularly in the hospital, it happened I saw her son kind of hiding around the corner of the hospital room listening to my devotion, and then her son called me. And I'll never forget the day I came in and I said, I know one of the reasons, I'm sure there's many, but I know one of the reasons why you are, God has allowed this suffering to come upon you. And then I told her he's used it to call your son back into his flock. And I'll never forget the grin on her face as she said with complete confidence, then it's worth it. Jesus suffered spiritually in a way you and I, thanks to his grace, will never know what it's like to suffer. He suffered spiritually and mentally as well. So if you are suffering mentally or physically, you can be assured that your savior would not allow that to happen unless he was using it for your good or the good of your neighbor. And so why must the servant of the Lord suffer to be humbled beneath what is human so that you and I can be elevated we can be made God's children Now as I said verse 14 really begins and then has a parenthetical statement about his disfigurement so we actually it would be as many were aghast over you parenthetical statement about his disfigurement and then verse 15 says so he will splatter many nations. Concerning him, kings will shut their mouths, because that which was not counted up and declared to them, they will have seen, and that which they had not heard, they will have understood for themselves. Now you'll notice our translation, which I read at the beginning of the sermon said, so he will sprinkle many nations. And in that, there's a beautiful gospel picture. In the Old Testament, you brought a sacrifice, an innocent victim, this was all pointing to Christ, who would die in the place for your sins and the priest would inspect the animal, make sure that it was without blemish or defect and you would cut its throat and ultimately the priest would put the body on the altar but the blood would be collected and he'd dip the hyssop plant into that and he'd sprinkle that blood on you. And it was truly because of the coming lamb of God, Jesus Christ, your sins were taken away, announced your sins were forgiven. Somebody else took your place. And again, all that pointed to Christ. So that picture here, it's truly the most beautiful gospel picture. But it may not be what's meant. See, there's not a direct object the way we would think. It's actually that he would splatter. Almost like the, when, when you do take paint and you flick it off of the paintbrush, how it scatters out. It's not that the, that the blood itself is the object. The nation's are scattered out. So it it seems here that, that he causes nations to scatter and that can be law or that can be gospel. So let's take a look at the law in the ultimate fulfillment. Kings. We've mentioned people like Hitler and Stalin, and there are governments to this day that they have such a problem with the idea that God loves you and has freed you and even uh, puts you in a position where you can be a benefit to your fellow human being, your fellow citizen and your government showing God's love. Well, that that seems to be such an intimidating message for them that they literally persecute Christians and often put them to death. Well, one way or the other, they're not going to get away with it. When they die, they will face the Lord then. But when Christ returns, those who work so hard against the Lord, those who rejected him, will see him in all of his glory and go, "Uh uh-oh. What they themselves refuse to hear, that wasn't recounted up and described to them because they would have gone, la, 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 not listening anyways. Suddenly they're gonna say, that is the loving God and I hated him, or I was indifferent to him. They will want to run in fear. So that would be the law picture. But there's a gospel picture here as we can understand it as well. 50 days after Christ's uh, resurrection on Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples there in Jerusalem. And there were people from many nations there, right? And the word would go, back, would go out from Jerusalem to the many nations, Men like the Apostle Paul would spread it throughout the Roman Empire. Think of the evangelist Philip. We don't want to confuse him for the Apostle Philip, but the evangelist Philip, who ironically, there, that Ethiopian eunuch who was on his way back home to Ethiopia had bought a scroll of Isaiah and was reading the suffering servant portion that is this year's text. And, and Philip says, basically, are you getting it? And he explains it to him. Well, you know that Ethiopian took that back home with him and shared the word of God that the Savior had come. And so the word spread. And it's very interesting, we're told, uh, because that which was not counted up and declared to them, they will have seen. That is an accounting term. When, when, you, when you count up all of the beans, if you will, and then you give a description of what's going on. The fact that we need a savior and we have a savior, counted up graphically and described. It had not been that. You think about... Uh, You and I before God came to us with his word. But then he does. And then we see it. We see Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we can't keep our mouth shut. We become the ones who count it up and share it and describe it with others. We tell our neighbor and pour the blood of the lamb on them. And that which they have not heard, they will have understood for themselves. We understand I'm a sinner who has been made God's child. Now I understand this. And then we're able to understand how to live in that grace instead of being Pharisees pointing out people's sins so we can feel like I'm better than you. We understand how to motivate people with God's love, with his grace, as we share the good news of salvation in Christ. So the nations then would be as in that case, it can be law where those who reject the Lord one day and on judgment day ultimately or prior to that will turn around and go, uh-oh, Or it can be the conversion, not just of Jews, but of Gentiles as the word goes out throughout the world. Romans 10 verses 12 through 14 tells us. So there's no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord is Lord of all who gives generously to all who call on him. Yes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To be humbled beneath what is human so that he can lift you up and make you God's child. And to be glorified in the mouths of men as you have stood in amazement and seen how a sinner like you has been made God's child, you cannot help but to sing out, to tell others the good news of salvation in Christ. And when you do, he is glorified in your mouth. Amen. And now the Lord lets you, his servants, depart in peace according to his words, for your eyes have seen God's salvation, which he prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of his people Israel. Amen.